It's great that is, isn't it? And uh, just to let you know that we're playing it every week. We're building up to week five when Janet's going to do it live for you. Is that all right? So that's something to put in your, in your diaries. Youth, if you can make your way out, if you haven't already gone, have a great morning. Um, it's been really interesting to me to notice that when we started this series on grace, which is kind of like, you know, one of the most commonly used terms or words in the Christian faith, that actually many of you out there in your life groups and your discussions have been feeding back to us that you've been struggling a little bit trying to understand what we're on about, <laughs> to understand this concept of grace and to try and understand, you know, well, this has happened to me. Is this kindness? Is this mercy? Is this love? Is this compassion? Is this forgiveness? Is this grace? What is it? And, um, and you've been kind of struggling with that a little bit. And, you've, and so when we said, you know, come and put your stories of grace, there's, there's a sense in which all oh, people are a little bit unsure. You know, have I got a story of grace? What does it look like? Now, I think all of that's really good that you're confused by what we're saying. Because, because what happens when you do that is that you go away and think about it. And you talk about it. And you dig yourself into it. And the only way the truth of the Bible will change us it's not just when we hear it, but when we let it read us and when we let it shape us. So the fact that you're struggling a little bit is good news to me as a teacher, because I want you to go and struggle and to discover and to wrestle with the subject yourself to try and understand it. Having said that, I was asking God this week um, to give me some kind of illustration to help you to perhaps like be a, a key to open a door for you. Now, this may even confuse you even more, but I'm going to give it a go. And so I was chatting with one of our staff members this week, and we were talking about this whole issue. How do we help people understand grace? And I noticed that there was some nail varnish on this staff member's desk. And I said, Dan, let, no, <laughs> it's all in the timing. <laughs> It wasn't Dan. Before you write to the elders, he, he puts his in his desk. Isn't that, no, it's not. It wasn't. It wasn't. Stop it. Stop it. Behave. And, and as I looked at the nail varnish, I had this kind of picture that came into my mind. And I shared it with this person. She went, wow, that's really helpful. So here's the picture. And it's a picture of a colour chart. If you've ever been to B&Q or something, or you've seen a Dulux colour chart, if you want the colour blue, there are loads of shades of blue. And I thought, do you know what? Grace is the undeserved favour of God in our lives. There are loads of different shades of it. And you see, at the lower end, if you like, it could be the kindness of God that we've received. It could be compassion. It could be mercy. It could be forgiveness. The deeper you go into the shade, all right, the harder it is, and the more of God is at work in that until you get to grace. And I thought about it, it really helped me, so I'm just sharing it with you, that actually, you know, if you say, well, I'm not sure whether this is mercy or grace or forgiveness, it doesn't matter, they're all shades of the same thing. But I'll tell you this, the deeper you go into it, the less about you it is and the more about God it is. Because we can all do the kind of light, lighter end, if you like, we can do some kindness, we can do some compassion, so we watch something on TV and we get compassionate. There's a difference between compassion and grace, which says, I'm going to sell my house, I'm going to give up my job, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to do something about this situation. That takes a whole different deal, doesn't it? So I hope that helps you. And you might be thinking, well, I know I've had God's done some things in my life, but I'm not sure if it's grace, I'm not sure if it's this. It doesn't matter. It's all shades of the same colour. But with God's help, what I believe he wants us to do is to go deeper into this subject of grace so that we know that it's much less about us and much more about God. I had an email this week from a, a lady I hadn't spoke to for, for quite a while. Some of you will remember last uh, October, I shared with you that a friend of mine, a pastor called Tani in Albania, was murdered uh, because he was under the blood feud with his family. Do you remember that? Some of you remember that. And he was murdered in his early 30s on his way from church to pick up his kid from school, was shot five times in the head by a member of another family, this whole blood feud that goes on in northern Albania. And his widow, Eleanor, and their two kids, um, two just kids under 11, both the kids, are still living in that area and are still ministering. And she sent me an email, and I haven't heard from her for ages, and much of their communication is underground, there's still a whole load of stuff. And she sent me the email to tell me what was going on in her life and in their life and in the life of the church. And do you know what they're doing right now? This widow of last October, her and her kids and the church are helping 30 families in their town who are also under the blood feud. And so they're going into their homes and they're giving them food and they're praying for them and they're supporting them. 
And they're staying there. And also, she's leading the demonstration to say to the community, this cycle of murder and revenge and bitterness and unforgiveness has to stop. It has to stop. And I thought, that's grace, isn't it? That's grace. She'd have every reason in the world to move away from there and put herself and her kids in a much safer environment. But because she's received grace, not this end, but right that end, she's in there, not just compassionate, not just kind, but actually living it out. And I thought, that is phenomenal. So I hope that helps you, okay, in trying to understand this subject called grace and just unlocks a door for you. But what I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about a grace-filled church. Philip Yancey, who is a great, great writer, and he wrote this book called What's So Amazing About Grace. He's also written a new book called What Good Is God? Stories of Grace, and that's our book of the month. Okay, So I really encourage you to get that book. It's an awesome book, Stories of Grace all around the world. But in this book, What's So Amazing About Grace? He talks about an encounter he had with a prostitute. And uh, she basically met him and she started to describe her life to him. And she was in a right state in her life. Got so bad that she told him that she was selling her daughter for prostitution in order to pay the bills for men who like kinky sex. And he couldn't, he was a Christian leader, he couldn't understand this. And he said to her, have you not thought about going to the church for help? Do you know what she said? The church, I feel bad enough as it is. If I went there, they would only make me feel worse. And he kicks off this whole book, What's So Amazing About Grace, with that story. And it's interesting, last week Dan did a great job of looking at Jesus who could walk through a town and see the people who were on the edge and the margins and actually could reach out to them. Do you remember that last week? And it's really amazing that in the New Testament, people at their lowest, people on the edge, people at the margins, people who the religious people couldn't relate to, they flocked towards Jesus. They flocked to him. But often in our day, people like that run away as far as they can from the church. So if people like that flock to Jesus, but they run away from the church, something's wrong. Now it could be that what's wrong is that people have got a misconception about what the church is all about. I love being a part of this church. Last night it was so great to be here with 160 other people, Christians and and not Christians, and people in all shades in between. Just having some fun, listening to some music, uh, having some entertainment, eating some food, just having a good time together. And I love that about this church. A lot of people don't have that as their idea of what church is about. Okay, They think something very different. So it could be people's misconceptions about church. But it could also be that we don't fully understand what it is to live out a grace-filled church. And what I want to do this morning, and we're going to be a bit creative and interactive this morning. I've got five points and we're going to break it up with various things. Okay, A lot to say and I'm going to try and get it into the hour that we've got left. But I want to look at... A story in the New Testament, which you're going to groan about when, when you hear it, because you've heard me speak about this loads. Just like two weeks ago, I did my favourite Old Testament story. I think I'm going to do my favourite New Testament story now. But it's Luke chapter 15, and classically it's called the story of the prodigal son. And before you groan and say, oh, we know everything there is to know about this, I don't. And I'm discovering in this loads more than I ever realised was there at this story. And, and this story is a parable. And when you look at the Bible, and I know two weeks ago, when I looked at the story of Mephibosheth from the Old Testament, um, some of you might not understand, but stories in the Bible and metaphors and images and parables are God's way of communicating to us in a different way. Rather than an analytical, mathematical way, he communicates often in pictures or in metaphors or in symbols. The fancy word for it is typology, okay? So when we come to the story of the prodigal son, there are three main players and they're all pictures or types of different people. So the father in the story is obviously a type of God the father. It's trying to picture what God the father is like. The younger son, the one who takes the father's money, who runs away and spends it all on wild living, who comes to his senses, who comes home and has that massive party. That's a picture of all of us to a degree who've rebelled against God, who've turned our back on God. It's also a picture of people who perhaps have been in church and have gone away, right away from God and anything to do with church and then have come back. The elder brother, okay, the other son, is a picture of someone who has never run away, has never been disobedient, but who is actually as far away from the heart of the father as the younger son. He's kept all the rules, but he's still been as far away from the father's heart as the one who broke all the rules. 
Now, there's also a fourth character in the story that I want to introduce, and that's the house. Because, you see, the house is important. You see, I want to suggest to you that the picture of the house that this story is set could also be a picture of the church. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, that's Christ, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So I want you to think about this house as being a picture of the grace-filled church. And we're going to use the story. I could do a talk on a grace-filled church easily, by point by point. But I want to do it out of a story perspective this morning. So let's look together at Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. First thing I want to say about a grace-filled church is this. It's a church you can leave. And you never heard me say that before. (laughs) Because people like me don't hate it when people leave church. We just do, and I still do. But grace has to allow you to leave. You see, the, the man could have said, when his son came up to him and said, I want your money, in fact, what he's really saying is this, I wish you were dead, dad. Because you see, he gets the inheritance when his dad dies. But because he wants it now, he comes to him and says, I want the inheritance now. In other words, dad, if you were dead, it'd be so much easier. You imagine as a father hearing your son say that. Now, he could have said, no way, you're not getting it. You're staying put. And he could have stopped him from leaving. But you know what? What the father wants more than anything else is not our compliance. He wants our love. He wants relationship more than anything else. And so I think this was the hardest thing that the man did. He let him go. And as he let him go, it breaks his heart. Breaks the heart of the father to let him go. And the problem with these stories is that you only see the headlines. Do you know what I mean? You don't see the bit in between. You don't see the detail. You don't see what happened when the son first knocked on the door and said, Dad, I wish you were dead. How did the dad react? Possibly he was angry. Possibly he didn't talk to him for a few days. Possibly he was hurt. But he came to a point where he let him go. And I want to say that the grace-filled father is weeping as he lets his son leave the house. But sometimes we have to let people go. And you know, from church, my my perception is that people leave the church for a variety of reasons. They leave the church because they're disappointed with God. They leave the church because they're disappointed with life. They leave the church because they're disappointed with people. How many of you have ever been disappointed with people? And and they leave the church because of all those reasons. But do you know what? When someone leaves the church, not goes to another church, but disconnects from the life of the community of God... In my opinion, humbly, it is always connected not just to disappointment with life, people and God. It's also connected to their relationship with God. I don't believe someone leaves church before their relationship to God is on the wane. And something happens in our relationship to the Father. We get kind of estranged or or something goes a little bit out of whack somewhere on the line. And eventually we say, do you know what, I'm going to turn my back on all this. And we go. And... I want to say, we have to be a church that allows people to leave. And it's breaking my heart to know that there are some people in this community who once were passionate with God and now aren't that interested. It's breaking my heart. But you know what? I've got to let them go. I've got to let them go. It doesn't mean I don't care about them. Far from it. But I've got to let them go because it's ultimately between them and God. And I want to say a word to you as parents this morning. You are never more like God than when your kids break your heart. And you might have some perception of God as being some remote, distant, like Zeus-like figure that sits on the top of Mount Olympus, moving the pawns. That is not our God. Do you know that? You are never more like God than when your kids are breaking your heart. And if your kids have ever or are right now breaking your heart, you have a God who knows what you're going through. You have a God who knows what you're going through. We have to be a grace-filled church that allows people to leave. But it goes on. It says in verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country and he began to be in need. 
You know the story. He goes and he feeds pigs and he comes to his senses finally in verse 17. And he says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Listen, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. A grace-filled church not only allows people to leave, but a grace-filled church is always on the lookout for them to come back. Now, it doesn't say that from the Bible, but it says while he was a long way off, his father saw him, which means he was looking for him. means he was looking for him. Do you know what? This man in this story was an influential, powerful man. But he sat on his hands and let his son go. He could have sent loads of servants off to look for his son and bring him back forcibly. He didn't do that. And it took all the grace in the world to sit on his hands, do nothing and let him go. But he didn't do nothing. He watched out for him to come home. Isn't that amazing? He was always on the lookout for his son to come home. Now, the, the, the father is a type of God, but it's also, this is where it gets a little confusing, also a picture of, of what we're meant to become like, isn't it? You know, Jesus says, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. We're meant to be coming more and more like God. We're also meant to be a church on the lookout for those to come home. My question, are we looking for the prodigals to return? How many of you know anybody in your life who once walked with God and was part of a church community and who no longer is? Anyone? Wow, nearly all of us. How many of us are looking for them to come home? Not just to the church, but to the Father and to the And it's all connected to the Father, community, the house. It's all connected into that ongoing relationship with a community of people who love God and are on a journey together. And we're looking for the prodigals to return. But are there limits to those who we'd like to see come home? In other words, are we on the lookout for certain types of people, but not for others? You see, in one sense, a prodigal is not just someone who's been in the house and gone, but anyone who's away from God. Because ultimately, we're all created in the image of God, aren't we? Now, are there limits to those who we'd like to see come home? Um, Jeff Lucas is a, a friend of mine and a friend of the church. And he uh, ministers at a church in uh, America now. He tells a story in a book he wrote about grace, which I want to read to you. Okay, and I'll just read the story as it is. Nikki was a stripper. Not heard that very often in church before, have you? A bright pre-law student who discovered that men can be stupid enough her words, to pay large sums of money to watch women undress. Over a period of months, a man who cut her hair and fixed her nails befriended her and he never made any moves, something that surprised her and prompted her to ask why. Wasn't he attracted to her? Larry the hairdresser gently let her know that he was a Christian and that his motives were honourable and would she like to go to a church meeting with him? Nikki sat through her first church service whispering and muttering behind cupped hands into the patient Larry's ear. Apparently, she thought that the speaker had been given advance notice that she was going to attend, seeming that everything he was saying was directly aimed at her. How else was he to know what was going on in her life and be able to speak so clearly into her situation? Larry whispered that it was probably God working overtime. No one had supplied the preacher with advanced intelligence. At the end of the meeting, she made a public response to Jesus. She, wrote, she, wrote, she read the New Testament twice through that week and eventually called the pastor who was somewhat surprised to be getting a call from a stripper. She was about to change career. I've been reading that Corinthian book, Nikki said over the, phrase, over the phone. Have you read that one? The pastor affirmed that he had indeed read Paul's first epistle to the people at Corinth. It says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means that Jesus doesn't want me to work as a stripper, does he? With a cough, the minister agreed and says, that sounds right. <laughs> I've also read, she said, that bit where it says that God will provide for all my needs in that Matthew book. So he will take care of me if I stop stripping, won't he, with my rent and my debts and all that. Pastor assured Nikki that God would indeed honour her for making obedient choices. And God did. Some years later, she is still faithfully serving the Lord. Her baptism was interesting and that around 30 of her friends from the club, including braless strippers in micro skirts and some rather beefy bouncers, walked down the centre aisle and parked themselves on the front row. You see, when people don't know anything about church, they look for the front row seats. When people have been around... I'll just start, I'll leave that with you. I'll leave that with you, all right? One of, one of the church people was unimpressed and made an appointment to come and see the pastor. 
And she said this, you've ruined our church by allowing those people here. Jeff says in the book, I would have been tempted to floor her with a rebuke, but the pastor was wiser than I. I know, he said, I don't know what to do. Will you help me sort it all out? The lady thought it over and ended the meeting by saying, oh, well, I suppose we're just going to have to love them. And to her credit, she did just that. But notice that both sinners and saints on different journeys were allowed space to grow and to travel. It's a fabulous story, isn't it? Sinners and saints allowed space to grow and to travel. When we're on the lookout as a church, are there limits to who we're looking out for? Are there people whose lifestyle may challenge us, whose life choices may challenge us? I want to encourage you to come on Tuesday night. And I'm going to look at homosexuality on Tuesday night. And I have, to, I have a lot of questions about it. You will go away with loads of questions as well as hopefully some answers or some, some paths of direction. But I tell you what, are we really genuinely a church like God that would have a heart for those who don't know him? Or do we say, do you know what? You can come home, you can come back to, to the house, if you like, when you've sorted that out. Or when you've done that. Or when you've changed that. Because that's not the heart of God. That's not grace. How about people, because strippers and homosexuality, that's quite extreme. How about, here's, here's one. How about, are we on the lookout for people who come to church who we don't know? Let's try it there. You see, grace has got to start right where we are, hasn't it? And actually, if we're a grace-filled church, we're going to be looking not just to sit next to our friends every week or talk to our friends every week, but we're going to be looking at someone who may be new, who may be on the edge, who may be on the margin, because that's what grace does. That's what grace does. I'll tell you what, anyone can do the shallow end, the light end stuff, but we need God to help us to take into a deeper shade of grace, don't we? Where we say, do you know what, every time I come, I'm going to look out for someone who I don't know just to speak to them and encourage them. And if it doesn't start here, it ain't ever going to reach out beyond our walls. So let's be a grace-filled church, always on the lookout for those who need it. Then let's read on. So he runs towards him. He says, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. A grace-filled church is a church that's marked by extravagant love. You see, this, this father is a Middle Eastern, influential, powerful man. He doesn't run. And yet he's running towards his son. Now, at what point, question, at what point in the story does the father love the son the most? Is it when he lets him go? Is it when he gives him his money? Is it when he doesn't go chasing after him but looks out for him? Is it when he sees him and he's filled with compassion? Is it when he runs towards him? Is it when he embraces and kisses him? Is it when he drags the fattened calf in and kills it? Is it when he puts the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet and the robe around his shoulders? At what point does he love him the most? Well, the answer is no point, and every point, isn't it? You see, his love for him is totally unconditional, and it's mega, it's extravagant, it's scandalous. And I can imagine the son looking at his father, running towards him, saying, uh-oh, here comes dad, I'm in trouble now. And yet what he receives from dad isn't that, but it's just incredible grace. Do you want to know what it feels like to be God? <laughs> See, if I was asked that question in any other story, you'd think, oh, powerful, all-conquering, you know, I'd like to be God. Actually, this father is what it feels like to be God. Such a deep sense of loss and pain. You want to know what God feels like? Then he feels pain. Jeff says in this book as well that the, the week after the Columbine massacre, do you remember that? When that, that uh, university in America, when they had that whole massacre. And uh, I remember, when I read the story, it reminded me of the Dunblane massacre that happened in Scotland a few years ago. And I remember being in church here, hearing about that on the radio, going outside into my car, shutting the door just on my own and crying and hitting my steering wheel saying, God, how could you let something like that happen? And, and, and Jeff recounts the story the week after the, the massacre in, in, in Columbine, being in a church worship service and the worship leader trying to lead the people in worship and getting up and saying, I know it's a terrible thing that's happened, but I want you to know this morning, nothing's changed in heaven. And Jeff said, I just wanted to go, ugh, because that's not true. You know that, don't you? 
You understood what he was trying to do? He was trying to say God's still in control and all that. But to say nothing's changed in heaven is a gross misunderstanding of who God is. Everything's changed in heaven. Otherwise, we have, a, we have a view of a God who is unmoved, unfeeling, and is some kind of robot, and that is not our God, is it? So if you want to know what God feels like, this is Father will tell you what he feels like. He knows deep loss and pain. But then there's an incredible thrill of rediscovery when his son comes home. And then there's the awesome sense of jubilation and celebration. Henri Nguyen, who's a Christian writer, was a Christian writer, says this, God rejoices, not because the problems of the world have been solved, not because all human pain and suffering have come to an end, not because thousands of people have been converted and are now praising him for his goodness. God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. And I want us to pause there. I want us to pause there in the story. A grace-filled church is marked by extravagant love. There's a sense in which every one of us are the prodigal son who were lost and now we're found. There's a sense in which there may be somebody here this morning and you don't know that yet. You're here in the house, but you've never really come to God. There's a sense in which we want to tell you, this is your story too. Do you know that? But there's also a sense in which as well as we can identify with coming home, we know that there are lots of people out there who perhaps were part of the house. They were part of the father's house and now they're not. We call them prodigals and we desperately want them to come home, don't we? And what I want us to do is I'm going to ask the band to come back up. and They're going to sing a song um, written by Chris Tomlin. Uh, and we're going to show you a film which we put together with this. And it's just a little kind of a modern day depiction of this story. And as you watch and as you listen, okay, about this story kind of put to to music and to, and, to, and to visuals. I want you to do three things. Firstly, if you've not come home, you can. Do you know that? If you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never surrendered, if you'd never have experienced the Father's heart and His love for you, you can know that right here today. But secondly, it may be that you just want to thank God that this has happened to you. That you've come home, that God has run to you, that you know that you are in that relationship with God. Thank God for it. And thirdly, begin to think about people you know who are far from God, who perhaps who once were in the Father's house, and begin to pray that they also would come home running. You all know people who, you know, as you were watching that and listening to that, you think, oh, I wish that was them. you know, I want us to pray for people just for a moment this morning. How many of you know people that you'd love to see come home to God? Just raise your hand with me. Why don't we keep our hands lifted and we're going to pray. I'm going to pray and I want you to join with me in prayer. And there's this verse from the message from Isaiah 43. God says, I'll send orders north and south. Send them back. Return my sons from distant lands, my daughters from faraway places. And we're going to pray this scripture out together, okay? I'll pray it out and pray. You join with me and pray and you lift up to the Lord some of those people that you're thinking about right now that you want to see come home, not just to church, but to God, to the Father and to the Father's house. So let's begin to pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace and love to us. That was us, Lord. Once upon a time, that was us. We came home running. And we thank you for that, Lord God. And we pray right now for those people, perhaps in our own family or in our friendship groups or people that we know that we used to be in church with, Lord, that we used to serve with, that we used to minister with, who are not with you right now. God, we pray that they would come home running in Jesus' name. We speak this scripture out. We say, Lord, send orders north and south. Send them back. Return your sons from distant lands, your daughters from faraway places. And Lord, we pray wherever they are right now. We pray whatever powers and principalities are keeping them locked up. Lord, we release them in Jesus' name. We speak to those powers and authorities. And we say, be released in Jesus' name. We call out people. We call out those prodigals. We say, come home. Come home running to your God. Come home running to the Father heart of God. And Lord, we pray that you will cause us to be grace-filled people, always on the lookout, always ready to welcome with extravagant love, not with scolding or rebuking, not with corrective behavior modification, but with love, Lord Jesus. Lord, let them come home, we pray. Let them come home. Send them home, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. 
And Lord, I pray if there's anyone this morning that has never really come home, has never really invited you into their life. God, they may be here in the house as it were, but they've never really met the Father of the house. God, I pray that even today, Lord Jesus, that they would come home running. They would come home running to you and to your love and to your grace. Help us to be a grace-filled church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, the, the story can end there in many ways. And our Sunday school perception is that the story ends. And that grace is the grace that's extended to the prodigal son. But there are two sons in the story, aren't there? And there are two stories of grace. And so, and this one is the one that I actually think that God wants to speak to us about the most this morning. Let's read what happens. Meanwhile, verse 25, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother rejoiced and celebrated. Not. Became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Again, that scandalous grace for the father to go out and plead. with That doesn't happen. It happens in our culture. It doesn't happen in their culture. It didn't happen. That was scandalous that he went out and pleaded with his son. But he answered the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. A grace-filled church is a church that has grace for the lost inside the house as well as the lost outside the house. You see, my conviction is that this elder brother was just as lost as the younger one. And a guy called Wayne Jacobson says this, In the long run, it doesn't matter whether rebellion or religion keeps you from a vibrant relationship with the Father. The result is the same. And could it be that there are people in church seats and pews all across our nation and our world who are just as far away from the heart of the Father as those who've left the house and gone and done all kinds of stuff? Rebellion or religion? Both keep you away from grace and the heart of the Father. The clues to the elder brother's condition spiritually are in his words. I've been slaving away for you, he says. I've never disobeyed you. You kill the calf for him. You don't even give me a young goat. What are his issues in terms of grace? He doesn't deserve it because he's broke the rules. I do deserve it because I've kept the rules. The problem is he is keeping score with someone who's not keeping score at all. He's trying to keep count with someone who's not keeping score. He's saying, listen, I've done this, this, this and this. And the father's saying, I'm not keeping score. He was lost and he's found. All I have is yours. It's grace, isn't it? Not rebellion or religion. Either of those things keep you a million miles away from the heart of the Father. Do you know you can keep all the rules and your heart can remain unchanged? Do you know that? It's something that's really exercising my thinking at the moment. We're talking a lot with other Christian leaders across the area. You know, in, in our kind of crazy mixed up world it seems now. And people are growing up in a culture of post, post-modernity and almost pre-Christian and you know, all kinds of views of sexuality which we're going to look at on Tuesday night and on moral behaviour, etc., etc. And how do we help them to have the life of Christ in them? And how we used to do it was we used to do it by being prescriptive. We used to do it by behaviour modification. If you keep this set of rules, then we're all happy. The problem is, folks, you can keep the set of rules and your heart can remain unchanged. I was chatting to someone in the, uh, recently about, from a different culture who said, actually, we had an elder in our church who, and this was from a, if you understand the culture, you'll understand it, it was South Africa, okay, so you understand it. And growing up in apartheid, 
And, and he says, I remember in an elders meeting where this elder would, was going on and on and on about the length of the skirts that some of the young girls were wearing in, in the church and how disgraceful it was. He went back from the elders meeting and he beat his servant to death with a baseball bat. You see, you can keep all the rules, but your heart can be a million miles away from God, can't it? And we can live by values that are not biblical values at all. Anyone heard this phrase? God helps those who help themselves. I don't want to embarrass you by saying who believes in that, but I want to say that's not the Bible. You know that, don't you? That's a Western, consumer, capitalistic value. God helps those who help themselves. That's not the Bible. It's not grace. Cleanliness is next to godliness. (laughs) Some of you who are older understand that. Not because you need to be washed more. I'm not saying that. But you understand that value. You've heard that. That's not the Bible. It's not the Bible, you know that, don't you? We can live by values of our culture much more than the values of the kingdom. Uh, so the question is, okay, so Leo, if you, you're saying that this son was lost because he tried to keep the rules, are you saying it's okay not to keep the rules? Are you saying that because grace is so amazing and so undeserved and so unconditional that we don't keep the rules? Let's look in the book of Romans, shall we? Let's see what Paul says. We're going to do a quick whistle-stop study of the book of Romans, the deepest theological book of the whole Bible. Okay, And we're going to do it in about three minutes. So it's not incredibly deep. Um, so the first few chapters of Romans, Paul speaks of man's condition. And he describes it as we've all fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, let me put it into easy English, we're broken. We are not just struggling, we are broken. Humanity is broken. Cause it sin, okay, total depravity if you want the theological term. But we are broken and unable to fix our brokenness outside of a relationship with the one who made us. That makes sense? So we're totally broken, unable, reading the rule book will not fix this broken thing. We are totally powerless to fix it. But then in chapters 3 and 4, told you it was quick, Paul then goes on to say, but God has fixed it for us. Hallelujah. By sending Christ, his only son, to live and to die for us. And it says, while we were still powerless, still sinners, Christ died for us. The only way to fix our brokenness is the grace of God, because it's undeserved. God sent Christ. Christ lived and died and rose again to fix our brokenness, so that we enter into the fixing of that through relationship with him, through faith. Okay, And we receive grace. Then in chapter 5, it says, we live in this grace. And this incredible phrase where it says, and uh, so where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Wherever the sin, there's loads of grace. It's the way that God loves us. But then in chapter 6, he asks the question that we're asking. What then shall we say? Or what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So if God loves us unconditionally, and it isn't all about keeping the rules, why don't we just do what we want? And then, God will love us. In this book, this Yancey book, he tells a story about a man called Daniel, who phoned him up one one night. And Daniel was married and got kids. And Daniel had decided that his marriage wasn't satisfying him anymore. So he'd fallen in love, or he thought he'd fallen in love, with a younger woman who made him feel better than his wife did. And he was contemplating leaving his wife and kids and going and and, and living with this younger woman. And he said to Philip Yancey, will God forgive me for the awful thing I'm about to do? That's an amazing question, isn't it? Will God forgive me for the awful thing I'm about to do? And this is what Yancey did. Here is what I told my friend Daniel in a nutshell. Can God forgive you? Of course. You know the Bible. God uses murderers and adulterers. For goodness sake, a couple of scoundrels named Peter and Paul led the New Testament church. Forgiveness is our problem, not God's. What we have to go through to commit sin distances us from God. We change in the very act of rebellion. And there's no guarantee that we'll ever come back. You ask me about forgiveness now, but will you even want it later? Especially if it involves repentance. Several months after our conversation, Daniel made his choice and left his family. And I've yet to see evidence of his repentance. Now he tends to rationalise his decision as a way of escaping an unhappy marriage. 
He's branded most of his former friends too narrow-minded and judgmental. And he instead looks for people who will celebrate his newfound liberation. To me, though, Daniel does not seem very liberated. The price of freedom has meant turning his back on those who cared about him most. He also tells me that God is not a part of his life right now. Maybe later, he says. Then he says this. You see, God took a great risk by announcing forgiveness in advance. And the scandal of grace involves a transfer of that risk onto us. That's phenomenal stuff, isn't it? Scandal of grace is that God announced ahead of the game that forgiveness is there. That's a risk. You see, Paul asks this question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, he says. It's like he's saying that. What are you talking about? Of course we wouldn't do that. Why would we do that? Then he goes on to say, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Hang on a minute. You've been set free from sin. You've been brought from death to life. And you're asking, what can you get away with? Why would you ask that? You'd ask that because you're not really dead to sin. See, I'm understanding more and more through pain, unfortunately, that my way to become more and more like Christ is through death. I was with another Christian leader this week who leads a large charity that many of you will, you know who he is if I say it. And we're just talking about the last kind of year that we both had. And he was saying it's been the hardest year of my life. He says, and I really want to be Christ-like. And now I understand the only way to be Christ-like is through suffering. You see, Paul goes on to say that as we share in his sufferings, in his death, we also then get to share in his resurrection and his life. We all want the resurrection and life, but none of us want the death. But the Bible says that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, then it won't bring any life. And as we die to self, and as we are, if you like, the whole baptism picture, as we die to self, so we allow God's life to live in us. Does it make sense? And as we die, His life lives in us. So we don't even ask the question anymore, what can we get away with? I I love the words of of Jesus, (laughs) where Jesus said, If you love me, you'll obey what I command. And I've heard that in my upbringing as, if you love me, you'd obey what I command. But actually, I hear it differently now. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Not because you have to, but because you want to. And I don't. Let me be really clear. I've let God down so badly just this last week. Things I've said and thought and done. The reason is, because I ain't dead. The reason is because I don't love God enough in certain areas of my life. But as we die and as we love God, his life runs through us. We don't ever ask the question, shall we go on sinning so that grace... Why would we ever ask that? Because we're dead to self and God's life is at work within us. Let me carry on reading a little bit. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may now live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly... Also be united with him in his resurrection. No death, no life. That's what he's saying. You don't die to self, you won't live. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. I know that's complicated but listen to the next verse. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. That word count or reckon is an accountancy term. It means you count it, you reckon, you settle that you're dead to sin. You don't do that in order to make it true. You do that because it is true. It is true. So all the way through our lives, every challenge, we say, I'm dead to sin. Dead to sin and I want to love you, God. And when we focus on loving God, when we focus on letting His life and His love flow through us, He lives His life out through us. We don't even ask the question, what can I get away with? would never occur to us. Instead, we spend our days trying to fathom, not exploit the grace of God. And you know what? God needs to kill a few of us, doesn't he? I know he does with me. Bitterness, unforgiveness, impatience, all of these, all, loads of is in all of us, isn't it? And it's not by keeping the rules externally that I'm going to be changed. But by dying to self and letting God love me and letting God's love flow through me, will my behavior change out of 
who I am in God. And you know, church must be a space for the lost inside the church as well as outside. And if it's going to be a space inside the church, then what it means is this. It means there's got to be a space for doubt. There's got to be a space for dialogue. There's got to be a space for discovery, even for disagreement. So we're going to create a space on Tuesday night. Some of you are not going to like all that I'm going to say. That's okay. Some of you, I will go too far. Some of you, I won't go far enough. But out of a space for grace, we say, do you know what? This is a grace-filled church, isn't it? Where there's space for each other to grow. Those inside the house and those outside who we're looking out to come home. I want to invite the band back up. I want us to pause again. There's one more point which is very short. But I want us to pause again. And I want us to create a space where we can receive this morning some grace. And we're going to sing a very simple song, which is just an invitation for God to come and fill us again with His love. And I, I just don't really, didn't really know where, where I was going with this, other than I just sensed that that phrase, you're lost in the house, is really important for many of us. And, and I think that that sense of what you watched on the video, that coming home, running, the embrace of the Father, I know that many of you were moved by that. And some of you were moved by that, not just for other people, but you're moved by that because actually that's what you want. You want that relationship with the Father too. You want that sense of embrace. You want that sense of passion. You want that sense of, oh, you know, you're not the headmaster that I've got to approve, you know, kind of prove myself to. You're not the teacher. You're not this. You're God. And, and it's been a long time for some of you that you've experienced that embrace of the Father, that you've experienced that love of God. And I want to give you an opportunity to receive from Him tonight. So why don't we stand tonight, this morning? Why don't we stand? And we're going to just sing this very simple refrain, this very simple song. And right where you are, just to receive from God. You know, we put our hands out sometimes like this, just as a symbolic act that we want to receive. And I find it really helpful to do that. And it may be that you find that helpful as well. Just where you stand, just to put your hands out to say, I want to receive. I want to know you, God. And we've got a lot of hardworking people in this church, which is great. And God honors that. But I tell you what, that is not primarily what God's after. Do you know that? God's primarily after our hearts. He just wants to love us. Out of that, our work and our effort and all of that will flow out of that. But without that, it's a, it's a bit like, I call it the, the, the top button principle. You know, guys or girls, if you've got blouses, if you're ever you know, out in a rush in the morning, you, you know, you're buttoning your shirt up and you get to the bottom, you think, well, it's all over the place because you got your top button wrong. And once your top button's wrong, they're all wrong. And if we don't get this right, the rest of it's wrong. If we don't get this right, the rest of it's wrong. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are. It's about God's love for us. So as we sing, if there's anyone here today and you're saying, do you know what? It's been ages since I've felt found. You know, I just feel kind of lost in the house. Ages since I've felt that, known that love of God. We want to pray for you. We want to pray for you this morning. And also... I felt this morning in the nine o'clock, and I feel it again now, that there are specifically some people here, and the phrase God has given me is this, you're carrying what you're not meant to be carrying. And I specifically see you as kind of on a journey, and if you like, you've been walking, and you've been, things have been shot at you, and you've picked up along the way wounds, you've picked up hurts, you've picked up disappointments, and you thought, oh well, this is life, I've just got to carry them. And it wasn't a problem, but all of a sudden, it's starting to feel like it's a problem. And those things are becoming heavier and heavier and heavier. And God is saying, you're carrying what you're not meant to carry. And he's saying, if you just come to me, I want to heal you from those hurts. I want to heal you from those wounds. I want to heal you from those disappointments. You're carrying what you're not meant to be carrying. And it's getting too heavy and it's slowing you down. And it's not how you're meant to be. And I believe that's a specific word for some people this morning. And again, I want to ask you to respond and let us pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for creating some space where we can just interact with you. And God, we just ask your Holy Spirit now to lead us. And that Lord, in these few moments that we've got, that we would receive your love again. And that just that, Father, he said, everything I have is yours. And God, that's what you say to us today. Everything I have is yours. You want healing? I have it. You want forgiveness? I have it. You want mercy? I have it. You want grace? I have it. And it's all yours. So Lord, we respond. We respond and we receive in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's worship. If you need to respond, come. Come and kneel if you want. Some people did that, the nine. Come and ask for prayers. We'll, we'll just pray with you. Please, some of you, you're carrying what you're not meant to be carrying. Let it go. Let it go. Let God in as we respond to him. I just, uh, I'm just getting like, got this picture of a, a diary in, in my mind. Um, it could be in a phone. It could be just a, a paper diary. And you know, you know when, you, when you've, you've ringed an appointment date? And have you ever had a missed appointment where either somebody missed it or you missed it? And I just sensed that there was, I'm sure there's more than one here, and you've had a missed appointment or disappointment, which is a missed appointment, where you've had something ringed in your diary, in your life, that you actually thought was a God thing, that it was going to happen, and it hasn't happened. And I just sense that you're carrying that disappointment. And the Bible says in Proverbs 13, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I just sense that there's a sense that out of that disappointment that you thought was a God thing, that now your heart is feeling sick, and you're covering it up, with activity and everything else because you know what to do. But actually, inside your heart's sick. Uh, but the, the verse goes on to say, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And I just believe that God wanted to minister to some of you who are feeling that you've actually got a missed appointment. There was something that should have happened in your life and you thought it was God and it wasn't God. Now, if that's for you, then you just receive that. I want to just pray for you, okay? I won't ask you to come out. or You can talk to me if you want. If it's not, then that's fine. But let me just pray for you if there's anyone that that relates to. Father, I want to pray for anybody right now that feels that they've got a missed appointment, that there was a, there was a ring around a date or a ring around something in their life that hasn't happened. And God, as a result of that, their heart has grown a little bit sick. God, I want to pray for healing into their heart in Jesus' name. I want to pray, Lord God, that you would help them and meet them in their disappointment. And Lord, it may be that that ring wasn't the ring that you put there anyway, but was their own ring. And it may be for a really good reason. But God, I pray that beyond that, I really pray for life to come back into their heart in Jesus' name. Let that longing fulfilled be a tree of life that brings life and energy into their spirit and into their Christian life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can stay standing. There's, um, we still pray for people. That's fine. There's a fifth point about the grace-filled church that I want to I wanna leave with you because this is really, really important. And, and, and you could miss this. You could miss this, but it's really important. In the very last line of the story, when, when the father pleads with the son, the elder brother, to come back in. And he says, everything I have is yours. It says in verse 32, but we had to celebrate. Not, not, not we wanted to celebrate, not we chose to. We had to celebrate because, and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The last thing is this. A church that's grace-filled loves to celebrate stories of grace. And we don't celebrate like just the principles and the, you know, the facts and the truth of grace. We celebrate stories because stories are about people, aren't they? That's why this is so important, what we're trying to do here. And I know some of you are struggling to engage with that and to put something up because it's so important. And it's not like, oh, it would be a nice thing to do. Isn't that like trendy or, do you know what I mean, or interactive? It's not that. We have to celebrate stories of grace because that's what we're about. That's what we're about. And and I don't care whether your story of grace is a a, a lighter shade of blue or a darker shade of blue, all right? Just start telling it. Because once we start celebrating it, we bring honor and glory to God and we encourage one another. And do you know what? In heaven, your story of grace is told. Do you know that? It says in the Bible, in Luke chapter 15, there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner comes home. The moment I gave my life to Christ... All of heaven paused and they talked about my story. Isn't that amazing? And every time we celebrate the stories of grace, we bring honor to God and we encourage one another. And so I want to I encourage you. We're going to celebrate as we sing, as we finish together. We'll still pray for folks. We can do the both. And I want to encourage you to come and to put some stories up there of grace that you've received and grace that you've given. There's some fantastic stories up there. You want to read them sometime when you've got the time. But let's start to put some up and let's start to celebrate the great stories of grace in our life and in the lives of each other. Amen. A 